All right, let's pray. And then we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse, beginning in verse 18. Uh, Heavenly Father, we bless you for our time together. Thank you for Jose being here with us. Thank you for Dave coming to encourage us. And thank you that your word is eternal. It bides forever, living and active, bringing those who come to you with faith to your son, Jesus Christ. So bring us there to his feet this morning. That any tears we shed this morning would land on his feet. Any glory we seek would be for him. Any encouragement or strength that we need would come from Him and being in His presence. Let us encounter your Son. We beg it in His name. Amen. Amen. Jesus is our message. I'm telling you, Jesus is who we have to give. That's it. That's who we have to give. Jesus is peace for our city He is justice personified and given. He is hope in a hopeless world. He is restoration with God. He is our message. And I want to encourage you this morning that you don't have to have great influence or power or prestige in this world, or knowledge in this world. You don't have to be looked highly upon in this world. You don't have to have X amount of followers on your social media to speak Jesus. It doesn't take an academic degree or an ordination to share Christ. You, each one of you, All the children in this room who have been baptized, you have been fully equipped to share Christ. In fact, when we look in Paul's letter to the Corinthians this morning, we're going to see that Paul stresses that speaking the message of the crucified Christ is that simple. Tell them that Jesus has been crucified for their sins. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.17, When I came preaching to you, I didn't come with eloquent speech. I didn't come trying to sound all educated and wise and powerful. In fact, all I did when I preached the gospel was talk about Jesus. That's what he says. He added nothing to the message. Why? Because I'm telling you, church plant, Emmaus, The message of the cross doesn't need anything added to it from us. The message of the cross is power itself. As a gospel-fluent church plant, we need to hear Paul's words again. We need to be reminded that no matter what the culture thinks, no matter what might sound offensive or too exclusive, the world needs to hear from us the word of the cross. I'm not making it up. It's in 1 Corinthians 18. Let's 1:18. Let's look there. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul has just said, I preached the gospel with simplicity. That's what he's just said. And now he's going to move in for several verses to explain. What is the gospel? What does gospel mean? Good news. What is the good news that Paul's giving? And then he's going to talk about 
How do different people receive that good news? He's going to talk about three people and how they receive the good news. Jews, Gentiles, and everyone who's called. How do they receive the simple message of the gospel? That's what we're looking at this morning. And he says, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. What is it? Who is perishing? What does it mean to perish? In Romans 2.12, the word, well, the word perishing, it means, what do you think? What's another word for it? Dying. It also has this idea of total destruction. In the Greek, it has that idea as well. Being destroyed. Romans 2.12, Paul says, sinners are perishing. So who's perishing? Sinners. 2 Thessalonians 2.10, Paul says, those who reject the truth of the gospel, they're perishing. So, so people who are sinful perish. People who hear the gospel and reject the gospel, they perish. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus uses this word perishing. And he says, if you cling to me in this life, if you hold to me, the word he uses is acknowledge. If you acknowledge me in this life before my Father, I will acknowledge you. You will be saved. But then he says, anyone who refuses my good news will perish. That's who is perishing. Perishing, dying, destruction. This is the nasty result of our sin. Our our guilty sin. We were made to know life with God. To live orienting our lives towards Him under His wisdom and guidance. But Romans 2 tells us and reminds us that sin brought about death and separation from the God we were made to know. But Jesus has come into the world to rescue all who would call on him. That's the gospel. Jesus coming to rescue all who would call on him. Paul summarizes this work of Jesus Christ, this good news of his saving work by using this phrase, the word of the cross. It is the word of the cross that has saving power. This is shorthand. The word of the cross is a short way of talking about the moment when Jesus Christ gave his perfect life as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world. When the incarnate God died for sinners and when he was raised to everlasting life. Paul shortens all of that by saying the word of the cross. Not just the message that Paul is speaking. Yes, that. But the actual moment of the cross. That's what he's referring to. The good news of the cross. The cross then is not just a historical moment to reflect on or for historians to write about. The cross has, listen, today, still, that moment in time when Jesus gave his life for the sins of the world, it currently has effective power to redeem all who would call on Jesus. The cross is the forever power of the redeeming God for anyone, anywhere, at any time who calls on the name of Jesus to save them. The cross has power. Even at Holy Communion, we're brought again to that power of the forgiveness of sins as we eat and are nourished by the body and blood of Jesus Christ. This is foolishness to the one who is perishing. 
Everything I just said, summarizing, or uh, not summarizing, Paul summarized, I expounded on the, what the word of the cross is. It seems folly to those who are perishing. Why? Well, because first of all, it just cuts man down. It's the message of you're guilty. Actually, you're not generally good. You are sinful to the core. You have broken faith with God. You have turned from your maker and you're destined for wrath. And you can do nothing about it. That, in our modern day for sure, it kind of gets under the skin of the individual who looks into himself to find everything, right? And we're telling them, no, you have to look without. You have to look outside to find hope and peace and joy and salvation. You have to look to Jesus. God, you know, the guiding wisdom of our day is um, with the rise of the self. What I mean by that is today, self is God. Individuals determine morals. Individual determines what is good and right. Individuals determine who to love and who not to love. And we actually cannot critique individuals because they get to decide. And eventually, the goal is that you can express in our Western uh, secular culture that you should be allowed to express whatever impulse you feel within without consequence, without the fear of consequence. That's the rise of the individual as God. Does that make sense what I just said? You should be free to express whatever you think without consequence. That's taking the place of God. That's the wisdom of our day. But God destroys the wisdom of the world. How does he do this? He does the unexpected. In verse 19, it says, For it is written... And then Paul quotes from Isaiah chapter 29, verse 14. And in that whole chapter in Isaiah, usually, always, when a a New Testament writer quotes the Old Testament, he knows the context. He's not just pulling verses out of, oh, that applies. No, he knows everything that's going on. In Isaiah 29, God is getting on some Jewish leaders who thought that they were wise. In Isaiah 29. How did they think they were wise? You can read it this week. They thought they were wise because they were putting on a show. On the outside, it looked like they loved God. And it looked like they were doing all the right things. But on the inside, in their hearts, they loved idols. They did not worship God. They were far from God on the inside. But the crazy thing is, these Jewish people, they thought they were tricking God. They actually thought, God has no clue. But Isaiah 29 says, no. God knows. And you who think you're wise to dupe God, he will judge you. He'll turn your wisdom all upside down. And it talks about how it's going to be the shocking judgment, unexpected judgment, messianic judgment. And so the fullness of that prophecy is when Jesus Christ comes into the world to destroy the power of the wise. He comes into a world filled with sinners far from God who don't have the law, and they, are, they just worship created things. Jesus comes to them. Jesus comes into the world to Jews who have the law and who, who act righteous, but inward are unrighteous. Jesus comes to all of us. And how did God judge the world? How did he shock them and dismantle our broken wisdom? Jesus, listen, Jesus perished for those destined to perish. 
that's a bit shocking and unexpected. Matthew 15, 24, Jesus says, I came for the lost in Israel. I came for the lost in Israel. And that word lost is the same Greek word, perishing. I came for those destined to perish because of their unrighteous hearts. No matter what they look like on the outside, they're sinful on the inside. And I came for them because they're perishing. And then in Matthew chapter 27, it's verse 20. It's right before Jesus is crucified. Leading up to the moment where the Son of God dies for those who are destined to die. Here's what the leaders of Israel do, say. Here's what they do. These wise leaders. Listen to what it says. This is Matthew 27, 20. Now the chief priests and elders... Those are the, the self-righteous individuals who think themselves wise enough to trick God. They persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas. We know Barabbas, a murderer. And they persuaded them to destroy Jesus. Guess what that Greek word is translated in our passage? Perish. Jesus, with a pure, sinless, honest, infinitely wise heart, died for sinful, broken, foolish hearts. It's quite shocking that the dying God would be the way for salvation for dying men. Yet, for those who are perishing, to those who are in denial of the truth, the cross is folly. It just doesn't make rational sense. And what I want to tell you this morning, I had a professor in seminary would always say this, the cross is supra-rational. It's a rationality that makes so much sense that we can't make sense of it. Like, it's beyond our, uh, we can't get it all into our brain. I like to say it, revelatory rationality. It, it is given to you. If the cross makes sense to you, it's because God opened your eyes. Does that make sense? Understanding the cross comes from God. But if it hasn't come from God, it seems foolish. How does it make sense? Look at verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Paul's asking him, come on up. If you think yourself wise, come on up. Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? As folly as it might sound, the cross of Christ is a fact. It happened. And now that God has acted and power at Calvary, every person, every person needs to be confronted with the news of the cross. So Paul invites them to come and see. Come and hear. If you think yourself wise, come and hear about the cross. If you think you're a scribe, come and hear about the cross. If you think you're this philosophical, brilliant man, come and hear about the cross. Because here you will find true wisdom. That's kind of what Paul is doing. And this is the same invitation we need to have for our neighbors. Come and see the cross. Come and hear about the word of the cross. When Paul says wise here, he's using a general term that anybody who's considered wise, generally. But then when he says scribe, Charles Hodge in his commentary, he makes the case that here with the word scribe, he's talking about the, the wise Jewish person, the expert in the law. You know, this scribe, he, he knows the law, he argues about the law, he turns to the law for wisdom, he turns to the law for a right standing with God, and he tries to lead the people with the law. And Paul says, what you need is the cross. 
You need to find wisdom in the cross. You need to find a right standing at the cross. That's what Paul's saying. And then he turns to the, the uh, debater. Well, that would be the Greek philosophical thinker. And I think Charles Hodge is right because eventually Paul starts comparing Jews and Greeks, right? We read the passage already. But the debater is the one who, who thinks all these philosophical ideas, wants to hear all the latest trends in, uh, you might say, the academy today, like the Ivy League school. That's where the debater lives, and he just sits in his office thinking all day. Paul says, you need to get out of your office and see the cross. That's his invitation. Come and see the cross. We have debaters in our age. I think of uh, prominent voices in media, Hollywood, different universities, Today, the debaters are mega billionaires who, with their money, try to exert influence. Social theorists, podcasters, bloggers, Twitter account holders, artists, LGBTQ plus voices, moral activists. They all think that they have the answer to the brokenness in the world and the best way to promote human flourishing in the world. But the problem is they're rooting all of their ideas in the wisdom of their own heart that is sinful and corrupted and they have no reference at all to God. And what does Paul say to everyone? Come to the cross. Come to the cross. That's his invitation to them. That's what they need to hear from us, the debater in our age. Come to the cross. See how God sent his son to redeem you. And then, then the world will begin to make more sense. Look at verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Everyone knows exactly what that's saying, so let's move on. I'm just kidding. That's kind of confusing how it's worded there. You might put it like this. For since the world did not know God through wisdom, in God's wisdom it pleased him through our, the folly of what we preach. So it's kind of confusing. But what Paul is saying here that is in our corrupted wisdom. Let's backtrack to Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. God makes man and says, rule the world for me. And man is given all the tools he needs to rule for God's glory. Adam has it all. He can be the wise ruler because he has access to God. He's living in fellowship with God, so he can rule wisely for God. But what does Adam do? Does he keep turning to God? He turns to himself. He tries to find wisdom apart from God, and apart from God, we can never find God. And so it throws the world into this corrupted place where in our own thinking, we can't get to God. That's what he says. By the world's wisdom, you can't find God. But in God's wisdom, that's the difference. In our own wisdom, we can't find God. But in God's wisdom, he made a way. He made a way for us to be saved. What is the way? It's the very last word in that verse. Verse 21. What's the way to know God? Believe. Belief in the power of the cross. That's why it seems folly to some. What has effective power to save? Belief in the cross. Belief in the preaching of the cross. That's it. We don't have to reason it all out. We don't have to get our life together before we come. We don't have to be perfect according to the law. To know God, to be saved, to be brought into the wisdom of God, we have to believe in the cross. When we affirm the good news of Jesus, this is the wisdom of God, that He would make a way 
for broken sinners to be saved. That's God's wisdom. But it still seems folly to a lot of the world that the cross is the forever power to redeem. Look at verse 22. Listen up. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. For the message to have real power, listen. For the message to have real power, the Jews in Paul's day said, prove it with a sign. I want to see it before I believe it. I want to see it all. Give me a sign. Jesus in Matthew 16, he he accuses the Jews of this even in his own day. They had all the evidence they needed that Jesus was the presence of God among them, but they kept wanting more. Show me more. Show me more. And Jesus says, no, you've had enough. You keep seeking proof signs, but I've shown you enough. The Jews in Paul's day says, I will believe it when I see it. Have you ever met someone like that? I'll believe it when I see it. I mean, if, I, if you performed a miracle before my eyes, I will believe it. If, if Jesus had an Instagram account and he posted images of heaven every day and said, this is coming for you, then maybe I would believe it. If he knocked on my door and he, I opened the door and there he stood, then I would believe it. Have you ever met someone like that? Our neighbors can be that way. Some of us can struggle at times to believe without our eyes seeing. But you know what's crazy is? Even seeing Jesus does not mean you'll believe in Jesus. The Jews, they had all they needed to know that Christ was true. He walked among them. He healed people. And they said, ah, this guy's a demon. Seeing doesn't always equal belief. The Gentile Greeks, on the other hand, they want to hear some wisdom in the message. They live in a culture that's committed and fascinated and fixated on what we call Hellenistic rhetoric. Hellenistic just means Greek-influenced. That's all it means. And rhetoric at that time was a big deal for thinkers. And basically, rhetoric is persuasive speech. That you organize your argument in such a way that from the beginning to the end, someone starts thinking this, but when they get to here, they agree with you. That's rhetoric. So they tell Paul, listen, yeah, maybe I'll buy it if you make the argument perfectly sound the way I want it. So they say, Jews say, I believe when I see it. They say, I'll believe it when it makes sense to me. Okay? Have you ever met someone like that? Uh, Just doesn't all fit in my estimation of things. Richard Dawkins, he wrote a book in 1998. It's been a while now, but... It's still very influential to our agnostic, atheistic world. It's called The God Delusion. And the thesis of his book was, you cannot be an intelligent thinker and still hold religious beliefs. Do you guys know some intelligent thinkers who think they're smarter than the Christian faith? It just doesn't make sense. He quotes, Dawkins says, only 7% of American scientists believe in God. And the reason he quotes that is to try to prove his point that the more intelligent, the more rational you are, the more scientific you are, you cannot believe in God. We know people like this, whether an expert in science, philosophy, anthropology, cultural critic, whatever it might be, they just don't think the proof all lines up logically, so they don't believe. But to both of these people, the people who say, show me, Or the people say, make it make more sense. 
What does Paul say? Does he say, okay, let me work this miracle. I'm going to drop this egg and it won't crack. Is that what he says? Or like, does he say to them, let's go over it again and I'll put it into a more persuasive angle and show you and I'll answer. What does he say? Look at the verse, verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified. And he admits it's a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but we just preach Christ crucified. That's it. Paul's not trying to meet the demands of sign-seeking Jews. He's not trying to season his gospel presentation with high-sounding, eloquent speech. He believes wholeheartedly. He actually believes that the cross has power to save. And lest he empty the cross of its power. That's what he says in 1 verse 17 of the chapter. If I add anything to it, I might empty the power. So I'm just going to share the good news that Jesus died for sinners. That's the power. That's the power to persuade your friends want more signs. You just say, man, Jesus was crucified for you. What more do you want? Or the logic... If it's not me, you got to keep saying, Jesus died for your sins. That's where the power is. It's a stumbling block for the Jews because they can't wrap their minds around a Messiah who would die rather than conquer. It's folly to the Greeks because how can a guy in Jerusalem crucified on a cross atone for my sins? How does that make sense? But to the skeptic in our day, to the thinker in our time, we need to do what Paul did and just keep Preaching Jesus. That's the power for salvation. It doesn't come from you. It comes from the cross. And so we keep proclaiming the cross. Gospel fluent community, after 16 weeks of working through a handbook, we might think we are better equipped. But I want to tell you, you have had everything you've ever needed. You have the word of the cross in you. You have Christ with you. And it's as simple as that. Share the good news of the cross. Now, lest you think the cross is void of a sign or doesn't make logical sense, look at what Paul says next. Verse 24, but to those who are called. So we saw the Jews, we saw the Greeks. Now, those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ crucified is the power of God, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. To those who have eyes opened, ears to hear, hearts to receive, what Paul says, called. Christ is the sign that you need. Christ is the wisdom that makes the most sense. When God's grace beckons you to leave human wisdom and power behind and fall into the shocking good news of Jesus, you realize the cross is the sign and it is filled with the wisdom of God. Here's how the logic makes sense. The cross is where God's Son stood between God and man. In this infinite gap that we could not cross, Jesus bridged it for us. And there, in that fracture, Jesus shed his uncorrupted, unstained, perfect blood for our sins to bring us back to God in payment for our sins, see 1 Peter 2, 24. 
Our sins were actually nailed to his body on the cross. That's in Colossians 2.14. Jesus took on the full wrath of God for our punishment. That's in Philippians, or sorry, 1 John 2.2. He paid for our sins. That's how it makes sense. And then Jesus proved it all when he walked from the grave three days later. That's in Philippians 2.9-10. The stamp, it's all legitimate. The work of Christ is sufficient. That's how it makes sense. And this movement of God, it turns the world upside down. It shames our wisest men. It tackles our most powerful efforts. God incarnated into the world to redeem. And then to prove it all, Paul points at the Corinthians and he says, look at your own stories. Look at the verse. We're almost done. Verse 26. For consider your calling. Really quick. He's trying to help them see how the cross which seems so foolish to men, is actually the wisest thing God could ever do. He says, look at your own lives. Look how he plays this out. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. He's saying, like in our modern terms, you didn't have very much influence. You know, you didn't have a platform. That's what people like to say today. You didn't have a platform. You had, you had nothing. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak in the world to shame the strong. It gets even more, more uh, profound. God chose what is low and despised the even things that are not. That's what he told the Corinthians. You were nothing. But he chose you to bring to nothing things that are in the world's mind. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Just as the cross, which was an emblem of shame and guilt and torture and death, was turned upside down to become the picture of God's love and the power for our redemption, he turns to the Corinthians and says, listen, God is using you. He's turning you who are nothing to you who have everything. The world might not look on you and think, oh, power and wisdom, but you have the power and wisdom of God in you. That's what he's telling the Corinthians. Listen. God is not concerned about how much influence we have, power, or wisdom we might have. He is interested, in verse 29, in the glory of His Son, Jesus. And when He calls us who are nothing in the world, who are, might not be the wisest in the world, when He calls us and uses us, we know to turn all the glory to Jesus. I'm nothing, but God has called me. Glory be to Jesus. Then he says in verse 30, And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Because of God, the Corinthians found Jesus. Because of God, you found Christ. You were brought into him. Because of God's work to open your eyes, to see the cross, you have been saved and brought into Jesus so that you could have all of Jesus. Look what it says at the end of the verse 30. Who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. You're brought up into Christ so that you can have wisdom from God, so that you can have righteousness, so that you can have sanctification, so that you can have redemption, all because you are in Jesus what does it mean, became to us the wisdom of God? 
We know that Jesus is wisdom personified. He's the Proverbs walking on earth, right? He is the greater Solomon, the wisest king. He's the perfect Adam who can actually rule for God on the earth. He is wisdom. But here what Paul's talking about is this wisdom that gives us salvation. This great move of God to rescue us. That's what he's talking about. Jesus becomes to you salvation. Bringing back to God. That's what Thomas Schreiner argues in his commentary, and I think he's right. So what Paul's saying here to the Jews seeking a sign, to the Greeks seeking a wisdom, to the Corinthians audience living in that culture, he says, here's what he says, all I have to give to you is Jesus. But when you have him, you know he's enough. He's enough for your righteousness. That is your right standing with God. You, you are a child of God. Because he is the righteous child of God and you are where? Outside of him or in him? You are in him. You know what? When you have Jesus, you have sanctification. What that means is today, right now, God sees you as pure and holy and lovely. We still make, we still sin. We still make mistakes. But our sins don't rip us from the love of God because Jesus always stands there perfect and holy and says, no, I got it. And so you have sanctification. You have redemption. You have been bought with the price of Jesus' blood. And here's the wisdom of God in Jesus Christ. Sinners brought into Christ, made right with God, purified of stain, redeemed from death. And it all works out to the glory of Jesus. Look what it says in verse 31. This is all so that, as it's written, this is Jeremiah 9.24, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Why would Paul, let's wrap it up. Why would Paul come to Corinth boasting about a crucified Jesus? Why would Paul, when other leaders in Corinth, in chapter 1, the beginning chapters, there's these other leaders trying to kind of get more influence than Paul. This guy named Apollos or Cephas. People are starting to follow him. But Paul says, no, I'm just going to keep preaching Jesus crucified. Why would Paul answer the Jews' desire for a sign and the Greeks' hunger for wisdom with a crucified Jesus? Because he knew, he knew the power of the cross. He was a sinner called by God to see the power of Jesus, the wisdom of Jesus, the righteousness and sanctification and redeeming love of Jesus. Paul believed, and so Paul had been brought into Jesus. He had been radically transformed, rescued from death, He had been taught by Christ what true beauty and goodness is and what the world actually needs. And so he knew it's just the cross. So I'll just keep preaching the cross. In fact, in verse 2 of chapter 2, he says, I'm resolved to know absolutely nothing except Jesus crucified. We may not have much worldly influence in this city, We may not have much power in the world. We may be a tiny little church plant. We may not be able to win every logical argument or have an answer for every single question. We might have fears that keep us from speaking Jesus. But I'm telling you, you have everything you need. You have the word of the cross. You are in Jesus Christ. If you have your scriptures open, look to verse 5 in the same chapter. 
that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. If you have Jesus in you, your words can be enriched with the message of the cross. Your knowledge can be enriched by the person of Jesus. And we who feel low, powerless, as if we have nothing to offer, let's reflect on Christ once more. Did Jesus embrace, did not Jesus embrace a path that seemed foolish to the world? The Jews wanted Jesus to prove his Messiahship by conquering Rome, and yet he let Rome crucify him. Rome said, okay, if you're innocent, speak up. And he was silent. Was not Jesus born of simple means? Was he not regarded as weak and lowly? Nothing to behold. And yet Jesus allowed the wise of the world and the powerful of the world to shame him, despise him, to bring him to nothing in his death and perishing on the cross. And there on the cross, Jesus spoke with the power. He spoke with the power and the wisdom of God. Forgive them, because I have finished the work of their salvation. If you've been longing for a sign to convince you that Jesus is real, if you've wanted to see more, if you've wanted to make more sense, I just say what Paul says, come to the cross, that's all I have to offer you. And believe on the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the word of the cross that is the power to save. Thank you for Jesus who would wisely give his life to redeem us of our sins. Thank you that you have opened our eyes. You have called us to see and know Jesus. You have enriched our speech and our knowledge with the love and wisdom of Jesus. And now, Lord, send us out to do what Paul has done to share with our neighbors and friends and family Christ crucified. Prayed in his name. Amen.